This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now, Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone you likely don't know, but you'll be glad to have met. Harris Rosen is the grandson of immigrants. Harry Rosenowski from Belarus, Russia, came here by himself in the early 1900s. Things were not going well in Russia at all for Jewish people. About the same time, the gentleman named Rosenhaus, he also came alone. There was a tremendous exodus. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish people left for America. So Rosenowski and Rosenhaus went through the process. Rosenowski's name was shortened to Rosen. Rosenhaus's name was shortened to Rosen. And so now we have two new Rosens in America. My mom was born here in America. Her dad was Rosenhaus. My dad was born here. His dad was Rosenowski. They met in high school and fell in love and got married. Growing up on New York City's Lower East Side was really quite an experience. Italian families, Irish families, and mostly Jewish families, all living together in not very nice accommodations. I don't think my brother and I perceived the neighborhood as anything significantly different than a, a normal neighborhood. So one day, we see a sightseeing bus. Why would anyone want to go to the Third Avenue L and a couple of ladies stepped down and looked around and said, so this is how they live. So this is how they live. And my brother and I looked at each other. What's so different? Isn't this the way people live? And so we were a bit confused. And when we walked home, we explained to mom what had happened. And she said, not everyone lives here. Over 100,000 homeless people. Not everyone lives the way you guys live. Some people live in homes. Some people live where there are trees and grass. I think that was the first time Ron and I heard that where we were living was different. I mean, you, you just live there and you're comfortable there and you're playing all kinds of games and, and having fun and don't think about those things. And therefore, this thing called poverty didn't get in Harris's way. A decade later, he needed a job, so he knocked on the office door of the hotel where his dad worked, the Waldorf Astoria. I had no idea if they had any, and the personnel director said to me, Harris, you've got four years at Cornell, you've got three years and three months as an officer overseas, we don't have anything for you. 
And I said, I don't care what job you have, I'll take it. She said, what do you mean? I said, anything. Whatever it is you'd like me to do, it's a start. She said, well, if that's the way you feel, I have a job opening right here. I said, what is it? She says, this is a file clerk. Whenever there is a job opening, you have to prepare all of the paperwork and make sure that everyone is aware of that opening so that we can find someone who is qualified for it. I said, that sounds great. She said, are you sure? I said, I'm sure. I didn't stay there very long because, wow, that was the best thing you've ever done, Rosen. Every single job opening you now have first dibs at. So within a very short period of time, maybe a month, there was a job opening on the fourth floor where all of the small breakout rooms were as a setup guy. So we would work together to set rooms up. If they needed a conference table, we'd do that. Chairs around the conference table, so whatever they wanted. I said, I want to get near sales. She said, okay, you got the job. 99.99% of the folks were Hispanic and it was good. I learned a little Spanish, not necessarily vocabulary that was appropriate. And one day I'm in one of the conference rooms and a short fellow, nicely dressed, says, are you one of the guys working? I said, yes, sir. He said, really? I said, yes, yes, sir, why? Well, I mean, you just look a little bit different. I said, yeah, but I'm enjoying the work. He says, well, tell me a little bit about yourself, and I did. And you just came from the military, you were an officer, and you went to Cornell University, and you're working with these guys? I said, that's perfectly fine. He said, do you have any interest in sales? And I said, that's my dream. He said, Harris, are you kidding? I said, no, that's my dream. And I'm right next to you guys. We're on the fourth floor. He said, I'll tell you what, Harris, my name is Xavier Lividini, and I'm the director of sales. The next opening we have, you're in. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning. The beginning to owning 6% of all of Orlando's hotel rooms and giving tens of millions away. It's a start, and that's the kind of attitude that you can have and accomplish almost anything in this country. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, an American dreamer story, if ever there is one, and if ever we've done one. Harris Rosen's story continues here on Our American Story.
And we continue here with Our American Stories and with Harris Rosen's stories. His Rosen Hotels and Resorts has eight properties in Orlando, but he started out as a physical laborer and made his way to the Walt Disney Company. I hadn't received a pay increase since I was hired, so probably in around five years, and was waiting for my boss or someone else to have a conversation with me. And one day they called and said that not my boss, but my boss's boss wanted to chat with me. I was so happy. I was so happy. I thought, wow, finally. I was probably making about $15,000 a year. And I was wondering, would I get up to 20? Bob Allen sat down. He said, Harris, you've really done a nice job. Oh, I was so happy. Wow. And then the word, but. But we, we don't believe you will ever be a successful Disney executive. What a shock that was. I didn't know how to respond, but I do on occasion slip back to my Lower East Side personality. And calling people by their first name was very common at Disney. I said, Bob, you said I'll never become a Disney executive. Is it because my ears are too small? He said, Harris, that's the kind of bull we're talking about. You don't respect the mouse. So I was fired. It was a terrible, terrible time. Fired for not respecting a rodent, and not even a real one, a make-believe one, which is really embarrassing. In the early 70s, there was an oil embargo. Imagine how disruptive that was here in Orlando. People couldn't buy gas. They couldn't come to Orlando. Buses, tour buses would come, but not cars. I don't think there was a hotel that was running at more than a 40% occupancy. Well, that was really the third job I'd been fired from. And I said, no more. You've got to do something yourself. So look for a little motel to buy. And one day I drove in here. Now, the original motel was 256 rooms. We're now 728. So on June 14, 1974, after meeting with the owner and having him share with me in a very emotional way, he needed to get out of this property because he hadn't seen his wife and three little girls in weeks. He couldn't afford a general manager, couldn't afford a salesperson, didn't know anything about the business. He was a real estate guy, and he bought the little motel as an investment. He was so happy to see me. He hugged me and took a couple of weeks, invited me back to the hotel. And then he asked me how much money I had in the bank. And that was weird. I, I couldn't imagine why 
he would ask that question. And I said, do I tell him? Or I said, tell him. I said, I have $20,000 in the bank. And he extended his hand. I shook it. He said, you give us the $20,000, you assume the mortgage, which is about two and a half million dollars, and it's your property. I shook his hand. I didn't even know what assuming a mortgage was. So on June 24, 1974, I walked into my office and I cried. I gave away everything I had. And I spoke to my attorney and he said, Harris, do you know what assuming a mortgage is? I said, not really. He said, that means you have to pay probably close to $250,000 every year or you lose the hotel. I said, where, do, where am I gonna get the 250,000? He said, you work your off and make a profit. I said, oh my God, no way that I was able to make 250 unless I made some really drastic changes. So I moved in here. I was the general manager. I didn't have any assistant general managers. I did the breakfast cooking. I did all of the carving at night. I was the gardener. I was the head of security. I was the food and beverage manager. I was the director of sales. All of those jobs totaled over $200,000. All I had to do then was make another $50,000 to pay the mortgage. How was I gonna get any occupancy? motor coach. I hitchhiked to New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, spoke to the top motor coach guys who were so, so kind. They heard what I had done. They heard that I hitchhiked. They all found a place for me to sleep while I was there. They took me to my next motor coach company. It was from New York to New Jersey, New Jersey. What I did for them I had some business cards made and I gave them my business card and I said, whatever room rate you think is fair, whatever you want to do, whatever rate, write it down. I'll guarantee it for two years. When I get back to Orlando, I'll send you a formal letter guaranteeing the rate. He said, are you serious? I said, I'm serious. So I booked a bunch of motor coach companies. I can remember some of them. I booked Liberty, Google, in New York. I booked Domenico in New Jersey. Paragon and Crimson in Massachusetts. When I was in Massachusetts, the Pendler family, Paragon Tours, how are you getting home? I guess I'll pitch you. No, no, no. We'll find someone who's heading to Florida and they'll, they'll drop you off at the hotel. And they did and the buses started rolling in. We are one of the few hotel companies, I guess, that is completely debt-free. I'm around 10, 11 years old. My two Zadies, grandpas, came over, sitting on either side, thick Eastern European accents. They said, boy, chick, you're going to be very successful. You have something very special in your genes. I didn't know what they were talking about. But 
Listen to your Mercedes. Don't ever borrow money. They lost everything during the Depression, 1929. They were both very entrepreneurial. Samuel was making barrels. He had his own little barrel company. Harry had a beautiful little restaurant on Hester Street. But they started buying little apartment complexes. And after the Depression, many people were not able to pay their rent. They didn't want to have families leave. So they paid the rent until they ran out of money and they were foreclosed. So here's the funny part. I go to bed at night. My brother and I had a tiny little bedroom. And mom always tucked us in. And she's tucking me in and she says, Harris, why don't you have your PJs on? She said, why are you wearing your jeans? I said, because my Tuesday said I had something special in my jeans. She said, no, different, different kinds of jeans. She tried to explain to me what, what they meant. What, would it not be absolutely incredible if my two Zadies would come down for a visit and see what their little grandson has done? They started it all by leaving their families June 14, 1974, well, that was his birthday. And he assumed a $2.5 million mortgage, forking over the only $20,000 he had. I didn't know what a mortgage was, let alone what assuming one was. And by the way, we also learned the power of speaking words over children, and especially beautiful ones. When we continue, Harris Rosen's story here on Our American Stories. And by the way, go to rosenhotels.com to book your next stay when you're in Orlando and share this story with your kids. continue with our American stories in the final portion of Harris Rosen's remarkable life story. And one day, he's in his office dreaming of building his next resort, and he heard the voice of the Holy Spirit tell him, Harris, it's time to start giving. And so, Harris got to work. Sitting in these two chairs about 28 years ago, I had two individuals, Sarah Sprinkle and Bill Spoon. Bill was the principal of Dr. Phillips High School. Sarah was an early childhood expert. I said, I want to help youngsters, education, scholarships, but I want want something different, something that might be more creative and productive. Sarah said, I have an idea. 
Why don't you offer preschool education? Start the kids when they're two. That's an advantage that they will retain forever. And then what? And then Bill says, let's mentor them through high school. Let's work with their parents. Let's have a guide that's working with them. And if they want to go on to college, you provide a scholarship. If they want to go to trade school, you'll provide a scholarship or community college. And what if we combine those two endeavors into one program? Sarah said it's a great idea. Bill said it's a great idea. I said, I love it. I have to find a neighborhood. Rather than do something bigger, like focusing on a city, state, or country, and have a smaller impact on each person, Harris decided to do something smaller, just focusing on one single neighborhood of 3,000 people and have a bigger impact on each person. And the whole neighborhood that he adopted is called Tangelo Park. This poor neighborhood is in complete disarray. Drugs, prostitution, alcohol, kids aren't going to high school. High school graduation rates were horrible. It was probably in the low 40s. I think sometimes high schools were just really more anxious to say goodbye to the kids and they just gave them a diploma. Virtually none of the kids were going to college. It's a mess. And the neighborhood is so disgusted, they want to take the neighborhood back. So here we are, 28 years later, High school graduation rates 100%. Crime in the neighborhood down 78%. I don't know how many kids we've sent to college, hundreds and hundreds of kids to college. College graduation rates in four years went to 78%. I think nationwide, they're probably around 35% in six years. Of course, real estate values from 40,000 to 150 to 200,000 didn't want any publicity, didn't want any data. I, I didn't want people to think that I was just pounding my chest. The sheriff came to me about four or five years ago and said, Harris, you've created an oasis in Tangela Park. There's less crime there than there is in some of this fancy schmancy gated communities. Wow. Keep it up. So, UCF said, Harris, why are you keeping this a secret? You've got to let people know about it. So it must have been about 10, maybe 15 years ago that UCF started putting some data together. I, I don't really get very involved in all of that stuff. But it's important because as someone in business, I understand when I'm approached by a business person and the question is, Harris, if you've invested X in this new philanthropic program, what kind of return is there? And I, I, that's a very valid question. I said, I don't know. He said, be helpful if you found an answer. So I, I guess we've spent a little over $12 million so far. And Lance Lochner at University of Chicago, he said the return on investment is seven to one. So if you invested 12 
society gets back 84. How? Well, these kids are going to college. They're working. They're paying taxes. Crime is down. And so he said, I've added all of that together, and this is the return on investment. Generally speaking, Lance said, if it's a government program or kind of a pseudo-government program, there's not much return. If it's one for one, it's good. Often, it's you get a half buck back for every dollar you spend. Rarely is there a positive return. Seven to one is unheard of. The the government is really not capable of, of doing things very efficiently. So you mentioned the government, Duncan, Arne Duncan, former commissioner of education. He's here in Orlando. Someone lets me know that he's here. Said, Harris, why don't you go over and we'll give you five minutes with him. So I spoke to Arne about the program and he said, look, I'm heading to the airport. Why don't you hop a ride with me and talk to me about the program? So I had about a half hour with him. He said, send me a note and I said, look, I I don't want money. What my dream would be, would be for the president to invite me and some of my board members and to invite a group of private sector individuals, wealthy individuals, to hear our story and get them excited about the program. He said, gotcha. About a month later, we get a call. We're calling from the secretary's office we'd like to come down and spend some time at Tangelo. Wow, a man of his word. Guy comes down, spends a whole day there. He says, it is the most amazing program I've ever seen. I'm gonna share this with Secretary Duncan. Thank you. We're so excited. We're gonna go to the White House. There could be hundreds of wealthy guys and gals, and we're going to tell them the story. Oh, my God. So I get a call several months later. We got great news for you, Harris. I said, oh, my God. Secretary has agreed to give you a half million dollars a year for your program. What? A half million dollars a year for your program? But... I, 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 I didn't ask for any money. Well, but he thinks you deserve it. I said, no. What do you mean, no? No. I just wanted him to invite us to give a presentation to other wealthy individuals. We don't, we, listen, you guys are like, back then, maybe 10 trillion in debt. You don't need to give me money. I'm fine. He said, so you don't want the money? I said, I, no. He said, I'll call you back. I'm still waiting. (laughs) But I I, I close my eyes sometimes and I wonder, what would America be like if every underserved community had a tangible part program? Oh, my God. And what a story. My goodness, Harris Rosen putting his money where his mouth is and investing in a small part of a larger community, and getting a seven-to-one return. And this, of course, is what we all know. And this is on us as private citizens. We can complain about government all day. But this stuff is possible with our own dollars. 
and a seven to one return. No, he's right. That's not your typical return. Harris Rosen's story. And by the way, if you have any net worth or capacity or know anyone in your neighborhood, you should be giving Mr. Rosen a call or visiting his hotel or visiting his neighborhood. And you know where you can find him. I'm sure you just have to jo- drop his name in that part of town and you'll find him. Harris Rosen's story, a true social entrepreneur and not just a business entrepreneur here on Our American Stories. American stories, and we tell stories of all kind here on this show. And by the way, we live in a state where it rains a heck of a lot. We broadcast here in Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis. And our next story is about rain, or rather, an innovative entrepreneur's company that collects and bottles rainwater for sale out in Dripping Springs, Texas. That's right, Dripping Springs. That company is called Richard's Rainwater, and its founder, Richard Heineken, can probably be considered the godfather of bottled rainwater in the United States. Here's Richard in our own Monty Montgomery with the story. The idea behind Richard's rainwater started because of a dirty Texas well. Well, I moved out to uh, Dripping Springs. I lived in Austin, Texas, and moved out to Dripping Springs to help my sister-in-law build the Austin Zoo out. It's her, her parents had this property out there. And Susie, my wife, and her sister lived out there, and her sister was uh, raising goats, and anyway, it turned into a zoo. So I moved to Dripping Springs and built a house, and out here in the hill country, there's no other source for water except for well water. And so I drilled a well, and the well guy was he was leaving with a fistful of my dollars says, Mr. Heineken, you have a lot of water there. That's a darn good well, a good flowing well. And I went, oh, man, I was so excited. Go in the house, brand new house, right, and took a shower. The hydrogen sulfite was so bad, I almost threw up in the shower, and the water was so hard. When Susie did the laundry, the uh, Levi's could stand up in the corner and our hair stood out like fright wigs. <laughs> and we said, man, we can't handle this. Called a uh, softener guy. He said, oh, yeah, oh, that's some pretty damn hard water there. You can, I can put you two tandem water softeners together. I went, oh, my God. So I looked into solutions and I ran across a doctor who became a good friend of mine, Mike McKelvin who had started catching rainwater for his wife to really realize the well water out here basically kills plants. It uh, chokes their leaves. If you spray it on their leaves, it carbonizes over so they can't, they, they suffocate. So he started a rainwater collection for his wife's roses and they flourished and his house flourished. He, went, he got into putting it in his house. And he flourished and he was a really advocate for it and I met him and I became one myself. So I looked into storage and found a fiberglass manufacturer in Texas and ordered a fiberglass tank. 
and put it in and did a real real Goldberg job and it was all kind of new technology to me but just plumbing is all it was so it's just the water level water if your gutters higher than the tank entrance it goes in by itself right and so I did that and hooked up a pump to it and I took a shower and I was the happiest guy in the world the soap just came right off it lathered up like you can't believe it smelled wonderful it drank good and the dishes instead of being chalky all of a sudden became uh, clear so my neighbor comes over and says uh, guys would you guys just buy some new dishes and I said no we're just washing them in rainwater now he said oh my god well I've been buying new dishes every three years and a new dishwasher every three years so I want that so I went called back the fiberglass guy and said hey I want to be a distributor and uh, he said, okay, well, let's work a deal. And so so I was selling fiberglass tanks like crazy. I was the biggest tank salesman in the whole planet. I put in you know, literally hundreds of these things, and I've got a thousand people that were relying on Tank Town as their source for rainwater filters and you know maintenance prop things. And so that's how it happened. Then one day, I'm putting in these rainwater systems. I have a crew of guys, and I'm filling up our water for our consumption to keep cool. The whole crew, you know, in a in one of those igloo five-gallon water buckets. One day we ran out. Super hot day, sun, sun in July, and I, so I said, "Okay, guys, I got. I'm going back home to fill up our water again." They said, "Okay, hurry back." So on the way, I thought, you know, I should be able to pull into a store and buy this stuff. And the bulb went off, right? So I went, okay. And then, so then I was just focused on bottling this stuff. So I read the the regulations on a water supply. Realized that I needed to be a, a sort of a, a licensed operator to run a water supply. So I was started going to correspondence schools, and I went to Berkeley, Cal, and Texas A&M, and I got my I got a license to be a public water supply operator. Got a permit number and all, and. Then I started building a plant, and anyway, then I get to TCQ, the, the government agency that over, oversees our water supply in Texas, and they said, "Well, Mr. Heineken, that's a pretty good idea, but rainwater is not approved as a source for water." I said, "Okay, so where are you getting your water?" He goes, "Well, you know where we get our water. We get it out of Lake Travis. But where does that come from?" Well, you know, it has. It's like rain. I said, "Okay." <laughs> That's okay, so I'm going to, that's why, you know, so we need to make this, be able to have this as a source for water. I went, oh, I, I don't know, sir. And another thing, Mr. Heineken, now that we got this conversation going, we can't talk to you anymore because you're not a licensed engineer. So I went, okay, great. Well, I will come back. So I just had to prove it to them that it was a good source for water. So I built a little pilot bottling plant, and they said they approved that. Build it with my own bare hands. I'm a blacksmith. I'm a sculptor. I've cut the pipes and, and used transits and got the right things and welded everything up. And then we go out and put more systems in. And I get more, some more money. Go out and buy more metal. Put it all up. Then I thought, man, this is, I'm, I can't really start this yet. I got the plants going. I got everything going. I need some tanks. I ended up buying 13 tanks and we had like 250,000 gallons. And, and then I had the engineers, and this is a friend of mine, and basically wrote it on a napkin. I said, here, write this out, make it look real official. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to micro, we're going to put it through really tiny filters and we're going to separate it after it goes into a couple of tanks and then we're going to 
put it through a UV light, and then we're going to store it in a sanitary tank, and then we're going to put, just before we bottle, we're going to put ozone in it. Now, ozone, it's a really great sanitizer. City water supplies use chlorine, and chlorine is a cancer-causing chemical, and so we didn't want to do that. The Clean Water Act required public water supplies to use chlorine, and there was no other source of sanitation they would approve. You know, I have a saying, the solution to pollution is dilution. And it's the same thing these cities use. They just say, well, okay, here's a 10 gallons of chlorine. And so we're going to have to mix that with 13,970 gallons of water. And that'll do it. Okay, it might taste a little chlorine, but anyway, can't do that. And so my plan was, I said, okay, here's the deal. If you take me to court, and I'll, and here's a little end of it. We have to end up in court. I'm going to tell the jury that... Okay, here's what they want me to do with my rainwater. They want me to put chlorine in it, and that will cause cancer, possibly. And then rainwater, we've already proved it has no cancer-causing byproducts in it from the way we sanitize it. So it seems like a, a really smart thing to do. And so, and then also, if you say I can't do it, then then it'll be it won't be good because the jury is going to say, well, Mr. Heineken, we certainly don't want you to get cancer. So I, we like your idea. They said, well, we kind of like your deal, and it's also sustainable. And then we started doing testing on it and and then did their monthly reports, and it all always came back just beautiful. And at that point, more people in Austin and out in the Hill Country were getting into rainwater collection. So everybody's calling this interest and saying, hey, I, I, I want to put a whole rainwater system in my house. So four years later, we got the first public water supply using rainwater as a sole source of water without using chlorine, and then that's it. It's all over town, and it's a pretty damn good feeling. So it's a, it's a future water. There's no doubt about it. It's a, still the purest water on the planet because it did never touch the ground. As soon as it touches the ground, it turns to trash. The deeper water goes, people say, oh man, my well's 10,000 feet deep, but oh man, that's 9,999 feet of trouble above it. It's just the perfect water, but it's a little difficult to get. But Richard makes the bottling process sound pretty easy. After capturing it and put it in a, in a collection tank, that's the first thing to do. Like the city of Austin doesn't have to worry about that because they just suck it out of the lake. We have to put it in a tank that has no light in it because light makes algae and algae is, is, a, is not our friend. And then we process that through uh, more filtrations and then UV light and then uh, finally just before it goes into our bottling line, we add uh, ozone to it and it only lasts 15 minutes and then we put it in the bottle and we seal the top of the bottle. So that's a perfectly pure bottle of water because there's no trihalomethanes in it, no chemicals in it. And it's just, it's just a beautiful bottle of water and you can taste it immediately. When you taste it, it's sweet because rainwater cleans your mouth. I know it's kind of gross, but there's calcium on your teeth. All day long it's building up calcium. It washes that off. It's just amazing. So I've never had anybody say, boy, that's a lousy bottle of water. It's always, hey, this is the best darn bottle I've ever had. And it's it just, that's the fact. That's what kept us going because it's the absolute truth. There's any kind of comparison of another bottle of water. It's just like blind testing is just kind of a simple thing to do because you just, it's so obvious. And I've come, been through a lot of them and rainwater always prevails. And great job, as always, to Monty Montgomery. 
And you've been listening to Richard Heineken, and he's the owner of Richard's Rainwater. And, well, the bottled water and everything else comes out for sale from Dripping Springs, Texas. That's where the company is. And you can find out more if you aren't near Dripping Springs by going to richardsrainwater.com. That's richardsrainwater.com. Check them out to find out more. And we love telling stories about American entrepreneurship and American hobbyists and tinkering, because that's what he was doing here, folks. He was just trying to solve a problem for himself and folks around him. Richard's Rainwater, the story behind the product and the man here on Our American Story. American stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. We love hearing stories about random acts of kindness that people perform to loved ones or total strangers. One of our regular contributors, Stephen Rosiniak, shares with us an inspiring story of kindness entitled Hope's Name is Danny. To read more about the background of this story, please visit stephenrosiniak.com. Here's Stephen. There was never any doubt that if he were ever confronted with the opportunity to save a life, he would. And so, when Detective Danny DeBoyce learned that he was a potential match for a patient in desperate need of a life-saving bone marrow transplant, he knew just what he needed to do. Unfortunately, before he could actually have the opportunity to help another with their pain and suffering, Danny would first have to deal with his own. The story actually begins a few years earlier when Nicole, a young girl in Danny's hometown of Wayne, New Jersey, was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Residents, friends, and family members organized a drive to find a suitable donor capable of providing the life-saving bone marrow that could lead to the eventual eradication of her disease. Over 1,000 people responded to the call in the hopes of becoming that donor, including Danny, and as well, several of his fellow officers from the police department. Although a matching donor for Nicole was never identified, she went on to endure subsequent treatments and today remains cancer-free. A few years later, and as a result of his decision to be tested as a possible donor for Nicole, Danny was identified as an unheard-of perfect match for someone else suffering from another life-threatening disease. Without hesitation, he agreed to become a donor. But before he could do so, Danny had to submit to various evaluations and procedures, all of which would clear the way for him to receive the repeated doses of the drug that would prepare his blood cells for their eventual collection. Unfortunately, this drug came with a somber warning. Its side effects could potentially make him sick, maybe more so than he had ever experienced before. But despite this information, he wasn't dissuaded. After a litany of tests and pokes and prods, Danny got down to the business of becoming a real-life superhero. 
as his body began receiving the five-day course of injections that would ultimately prepare his own blood cells for their eventual collection, Danny's health quickly deteriorated. He began experiencing the flu-like symptoms that he had been forewarned could occur, and by the fifth day, his symptoms had become severe. Despite the rapid collapse of his condition, he endured his part of what had now become a well-orchestrated team effort. There was a second man who was equally invested in this story, and he too was suffering, but for an entirely different reason. Unlike Danny, he was dying. As the efforts to prevent his demise intensified, his chances for survival now rested in the hands, and especially in the blood, of a complete stranger. While Danny was doing his part, the soon-to-be recipient was receiving high doses of chemotherapy, thus rendering his body defenseless against any and all infection. A necessary step before he could receive Danny's life-saving cells. We don't know the identity of this patient whose body was now fully engaged in an all-or-nothing battle against so many demon cells. But we do know something of the man who came forth from the crowd intent on saving his life. You see, it had always been Danny's choice. He could have simply said, enough is enough, and just walked away at any time from the hospital and from the drug that was now at the heart of his physical distress, his suffering. But he wouldn't. He couldn't, because if he had, the needy recipient might have survived a little while longer. But by this time, it had truly become a matter of do or die, and Danny wasn't about to let anyone die. In the everyday world of law enforcement, police officers routinely rush towards circumstances from which others are running away. Danny exemplifies this spirit, and yet, Many still feel the need to ask him why he went through all that he had for someone he didn't even know, for someone he hadn't even met. Sometimes he'll say the recipient might have been somebody's husband or son, father or best friend, someone much like Danny himself. And other times he simply reflects on his own good fortune, a loving wife and great kids, good friends, and a job that he likes, all the while referring to himself as the lucky one. But of all the answers that he's ever offered as to why he suffered for the sake of another, perhaps one stands out above the rest and simply speaks volumes of the man himself. He did it because he could. In a world where too often those of whom we had once admired have since fallen, it's comforting to know that real heroes, superheroes, still do exist amongst us. To the sick, where there's life, there's hope. And today, Hope's name is Danny. For information on becoming a donor, please visit Be The Match. And you've been listening to Stephen Rasiniak. And thanks to Faith for producing the story, as always. And my goodness, Detective Danny Du Bois. What a story of sacrifice and of love. 
to a total stranger. And in the end, it wasn't even a sacrifice to him. He did it because he could. He could have said enough is enough at any time. He could have avoided his own suffering. But it was a matter of life and death, Stephen Roseniak said. And often, Danny would just reflect on his own good fortune. He was the lucky one. And my goodness, this country is filled with Danny's and we're looking for more stories like this. If you have a Danny Du Bois story in your town, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. This country is filled with good and beautiful people, and we love sharing their stories. This is Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Before the advent of the Transcontinental Railroad, a journey across the continent meant a dangerous six-month trek over rivers, deserts, and mountains. Alternatively, a traveler could hazard a six-week sea voyage around Cape Horn or sail to Central America and cross the Isthmus of Panama by rail, risking exposure to any number of deadly diseases in the crossing. Interest in building a railroad uniting the continent began soon after the advent of the locomotive at the turn of the 19th century. The first trains began to run in America in the 1830s along the East Coast. By the 40s, the nation's railway networks extended throughout the East, South, and Midwest, and the idea of building a railroad across the nation to the Pacific gained momentum. Many congressmen were leery of beginning such an expensive venture, especially with the Civil War underway, but President Abraham Lincoln who was a longtime supporter of railroads, signed the Pacific Railway Act in July of 1862, pitting two companies, the Union Pacific and the Central Pacific Railroads, against each other in a race for funding, encouraging speed over caution. This is the story of the men known as the Big Four, who incorporated the Central Pacific Railroad and helped build the Transcontinental Railroad. These four individuals risked their businesses, money, time, and talent in order to achieve an unprecedented feat of engineering, vision, and courage. Here to tell the story is Roger McGrath. McGrath is the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. A U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA, Dr. McGrath has appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries, and he is a regular contributor for us here at Our American Stories. Here's McGrath. In the late 19th century, Leland Stanford, Collis Huntington, Mark Hopkins, and Charles Crocker became so powerful in California that they were known simply as the Big Four. That the power came from building the Central Pacific Railroad, which accounted for the western half of our nation's first transcontinental railroad. Now, the Big Four didn't start out life as the big anything. But like tens of thousands of others came to California during the gold rush years. They didn't even strike gold, at least not in the traditional sense. Their gold came from mining the miners. That is, supplying the miners with dry goods, hardware, tools, firearms, and the other necessities of life on the frontier. From this modest beginning, they rose to dominate life in California to a degree not seen before or since. This is their story. Leland Stanford, Mark Hopkins, and Charles Crocker are born in New York State and Collis Huntington in Connecticut. 
Three of the four grew up on farms. All spend their childhoods in humble circumstances and work hard. The gold rush brings them to California as young men. All soon turn from digging for gold to establishing businesses in Sacramento. They become fast friends and are soon a force to be reckoned with in Sacramento, the new state capital. Crocker becomes a city councilman. Stanford will later become governor. They are alert to every new business opportunity, especially the possibility of building a railroad across the continent to California. Talk of building a railroad to the Pacific Coast begins in 1845 when Asa Whitney, a New York businessman, proposes the idea to Congress. Whitney suggests the government grant a 60-mile wide strip of land between Lake Superior and the Oregon coast to any company willing to risk construction. In 1845, Whitney's plan is far ahead of its time. Nonetheless, Whitney launches a campaign to convince both congressmen and the general public that the railroad not only can be built, but is a necessity. Well, within a few years, most people are convinced a transcontinental railroad can be built, but is it a necessity? There's a small population of Americans in Oregon's Willamette Valley, and businessmen who trade with the Orient will be able to avoid the voyage around Cape Horn, but is that enough to justify such a project? The California Gold Rush puts an end to the necessity question. Tens of thousands of Americans rush into California, and it becomes a state in 1850, so suddenly that California skips the territorial stage. Within a few years, there are 400,000 Americans in California. Without question, there is now a need to connect California with the rest of the United States. Now the question becomes, which route to California should the railroad take? Northerners argue for a northern route, and southerners for a southern one. Unfortunately, this is the antebellum decade, and north-south antagonism it is a, at a fever pitch. Congress cannot decide upon a route. The Big Four are following the debates over the railroad closely. They are astute businessmen, and they know they will profit handsomely from a railroad connection with the East. They take an interest in Theodore Judah, a young railroad engineer and promoter who is building the Sacramento Valley Railroad, a short line that runs from Sacramento into the gold country. At the same time, Judah is thinking he needs partners with money and political influence. Even before he finishes with the Sacramento Valley Railroad, Judah is thinking of a transcontinental railroad. He wants to build the far western end of the railroad, from Sacramento over the Sierras to Nevada. He will need partners and money. Judah and the Big Four join forces and charter the Central Pacific Railroad, announcing plans to build over the Sierras to Nevada. They want both federal support and the promise of a rail line to connect their railroad with the Mississippi Valley. The Big Four send Judah to Washington to lobby Congress. Judah proves an effective lobbyist, and in 1862, Congress passes the Pacific Railroad Act, which provides for the first transcontinental railroad. The Pacific Railroad Act decrees that two companies will build the rail line. 
the Central Pacific Railroad will build eastward from Sacramento across the Sierras to Nevada. The Union Pacific Railroad will build westward from Omaha, Nebraska, climb the Rockies near South Pass, Wyoming, and follow the Humboldt River to the California-Nevada line. Each road is granted a 400-foot wide right-of-way, together with 10 alternate sections of land for each mile of track laid. A section of land is 640 acres, or one square mile. In addition to the land the railroads will receive, the government agrees to loan the companies on a first mortgage basis, $16,000 for each mile of track built in level country, 32,000 a mile in the foothills, and 48,000 mile in the mountains. With the passage of the Pacific Railroad Act, Theodore Judah returns to California. Almost immediately, disagreements erupt with the Big Four. Judah presents his construction plans for the railroad. They are too grandiose for his partners, who are in this to turn a profit, not build an engineering marvel. Judah is terribly upset that he will have to compromise his vision for a monumental project and heads east to see if he can attract investors who will buy out the Big Four. Judah takes a steamer from San Francisco to Panama and then crosses overland to the Caribbean coast of Panama to catch another steamer to New York. Like thousands who take this route, he contracts yellow fever in Panama. He arrives in New York in poor condition. Within days, he is dead. This leaves the Central Pacific Company in the hands of the Big Four. The Big Four are very much alike. Each is from what is called Old American stock. Each is born and reared in the East in humble circumstances and comes to California in the gold rush. Each is intelligent, disciplined, and energetic and is willing to work relentlessly. Each is highly ambitious and convinced that his goal in life is the pursuit of wealth. With four such hard-charging individuals, one would think that conflict is inevitable. Fortunately for the Big Four, each proves ideally suited for a different role in the Central Pacific Company. Leland Stanford becomes the company president and the public relations chief in California. He's the company spokesman in seeking subsidies from the state and county governments. Collis Huntington steps into Judah's place as the Washington lobbyist and the chief money raiser in the East. Mark Hopkins manages the money and accounts for every penny spent. He restrains his partners from making imprudent moves. Charles Crocker supervises construction. In later years, Crocker likes to remind his partners that whatever they had done, he had actually built the railroad. And when we come back, we'll continue with this remarkable story of these four different Easterners who unite the country with the Transcontinental Railroad. Roger McGrath continues this story here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here with Our American Stories. I'm with Roger McGrath and the story of the Big Four and the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. And by the way, you heard the story of Theodore Judah, and this is what happened to so many people trying to get from the West Coast to the East Coast. Taking that long, multi-part voyage killed him. Killed him. And again, we heard what we hear so often as we talk about the building of American enterprises, and it's different men and women coming together with different skills and different skill sets huddled around a common goal. Now let's return to McGrath and the story of the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. Forty miles of track has to be laid before the first federal subsidy is collectible. This is difficult. Because of the Civil War, materials are at inflated prices. Round-the-horn shipping charges are sky-high. And the labor supply is limited. The Civil War and the booming Nevada silver and gold mines mean full employment. At this time, the Big Four's own resources are modest. Their Big Four status is years in the future. Moreover, investors are not eager to buy stock in the Central Pacific Company because the federal government holds a first mortgage guarantee on the company. This means should the company go bankrupt, the government gets first dibs on the company's assets. With the financial and labor problems solved, the pace of construction accelerates and the big four, all astute businessmen, begin thinking of not stopping at the California-Nevada state line, but laying track across Nevada. Carlos Huntington's lobbying efforts pay off again. In 1866, he convinces Congress to again amend the Pacific Railroad Act and allow the Central Pacific Company to continue building eastward until the Central Pacific meets the Union Pacific, wherever that may be. By 1868, the Central Pacific is building across Nevada. Compared with building through the Sierras, this is a piece of cake. Tracks are laid for half the amount of the government subsidy. This more than makes up for losses in the Sierras. Nonetheless, there are difficulties. The cost of rails, locomotives, cars, blasting powder, and round-the-horn shipping are sky-high. Moreover, in the Nevada deserts, there is no timber for ties and trestles. The needed lumber must be brought in from the Sierras. Meanwhile, the Union Pacific is well underway. Like the Central Pacific, construction is slow at first as the company struggles to obtain workers and material from a nation consumed by the Civil War. By the close of 1865, only 40 miles of track stretches westward from Omaha. During the next two years, though, conditions improve rapidly. First, Grenville Dodge, a U.S. Army general, who campaigned against Indians on the Great Plains and knows the country well, gets a leave of absence from the Army and is hired as the Union Pacific's chief engineer. Second, Irish Civil War veterans begin to drift westward with the close of the war. Grenville quickly hires these hard-drinking, hard-fighting Irish war veterans to fill the construction crews. All is still not smooth sailing on the Great Plains. All materials have to be brought into that barren country. Ties from the forests of Minnesota, stone from the quarries of Wisconsin, and rails from the mills of Pennsylvania. 
Moreover, several different tribes of Plains Indians are on the warpath. Work is frequently halted while construction crews grab rifles to beat off attacks. Leland Stanford scores the first victory. In 1862, he begins serving as governor of California. He convinces the state government to buy 1.5 million worth of stock in the Central Pacific Company. Now, this would be considered a conflict of interest today, but in 1862, it's considered a good move by the state. California desperately needs a railroad to connect it with the East, and the Central Pacific Company is the one designated to build the California portion of the railroad by Congress. Most people at the time think Stanford and his partners will benefit from the stock purchase, okay, but California will benefit far more if a railroad is built. Collins Huntington then scores a second victory. In 1864, Congress amends the Pacific Railroad Act. The land grant is doubled, and most importantly, the government reduces the security for its loans from a first to a second mortgage. Now, private investors are willing to risk their money with a first mortgage guarantee. Finally, Crocker solves the labor problem. At first, Crocker relies upon white Californians, mostly immigrant Irish and Germans. The wage scale has to be relatively high, and many of the men look upon railroad work as a way to earn a grub stake and then go off to gold and silver strikes in Nevada. The labor turnover is excessive. Crocker now decides to try the Chinese. The Chinese are already a familiar figure in California, comprising about 5% of the general population and some 10% of the mining population. There are several powerful Chinese businessmen in San Francisco and in Sacramento who act as labor contractors. Crocker negotiates with them and they supply him with workers. By the end of 1865, Crocker has some 6,000 Chinese workers and double that number by 1868. It's important to understand that white railroad workers are not fired and replaced by cheaper Chinese laborers. The construction crews are being expanded so rapidly that no one loses his job. By the spring of 1868, the Central Pacific and the Union Pacific realize they are engaged in the greatest race in history. The Central Pacific is winging its way across the deserts of Nevada. The Union Pacific is working its way across the high plains of Wyoming and through Lone Tree Pass in the Rockies. Between the two railroads lay Utah, which the federal government has defined as mountain country, although much of the route the railroad will take is perfectly flat. In Utah, the railroads are thus entitled to subsidies of $48,000 a mile while building over relatively flat terrain. Each company spurs its men on relentlessly in hopes of grabbing off a major share of the Utah prize. The Central Pacific builds 360 miles of road in 1868. The Union Pacific, 425. The pace of construction becomes feverish in 1869. The Union Pacific lays six miles of track in one day. The Central Pacific counters with seven. The Union Pacific lays seven and a half miles 
and the Central Pacific matches it. Then the Union Pacific lays an astounding eight and a half miles of track in one day. At this point, Thomas Durant, the president of the Union Pacific, asks Charles Crocker if he thinks the Central Pacific can top that eight and a half miles. The two wager $10,000 equal to a million dollars in today's money. And when we come back, we continue with this remarkable story. And my goodness, the story of the Chinese workers and the former Civil War vets who just happened to be Irish. We hear that story told by Stephen Ambrose. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And that's the Transcontinental Railroad from the workers' point of view. And Ambrose does such a great job of doing that in almost all of his nonfiction. When we return, we continue with this remarkable story. And to hear all of our stories, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And if you have a suggestion for a story, send them to us. You are the hour in Our American Story, and they are some of our favorites. Again, send your stories about almost anything, particularly people who help build your town, because each town in this country has people who founded it and got it started. When we continue more of this remarkable story, the building of the Transcontinental Railroad and the Big Four here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with our American stories and the story of the Big Four and the building of the Transcontinental Railroads. And for you who don't know a lot about finance, the idea that the government gave up its first claim in the case of bankruptcy and allowed private investors to get in there first, well, without that, well, we would have had nothing. Is what private investor wants to put in their money when if something goes wrong, they get nothing back. And here on Our American Stories, we like to teach you a bit about how markets work. Sometimes for the better, and sometimes, well, sometimes they don't work at all. And now let's continue with the story of the Big Four and the Transcontinental Railroad. Crocker assembles his best men and then waits for several days until the railroads are approaching Promontory Summit and so close together that should the Central Pacific break the track lane record, the Union Pacific will have no opportunity to respond. With newspaper correspondents present, and one of the journalists acting as the official timer, Crocker's boys swing into action. The first rail is laid, and others follow at the rate of 240 feet of rail every one minute and 20 seconds. The pace is fantastic, but can the Central Pacific crew maintain it for hours on end? The crew doesn't slacken its pace or stop until a break for lunch. After resting and eating, the crew springs back into action, again at the same record-breaking pace. At the end of the workday, time is called, and the distance carefully measured. The Central Pacific crew has laid 10 miles and 56 feet of track. The Union Pacific record is broken, and Charles Crocker is $10,000 richer. Now, it's the general impression 
of most today, that the track laying must have been done by a cast of thousands, and that since this was the Central Pacific, those laying the track must have been Chinese. Not true on either count. The newspaper reporter who was timing the event said, quote, it may seem incredible, but nevertheless it is a fact that the whole 10 miles of rail were handled and laid down this day by eight white men. These men were Michael Shea, Michael Kennedy, Michael Sullivan, Patrick Joyce, Thomas Daly, George Elliott, Edward Killeen, and Fred McNamara. These eight Irishmen in one day handled more than 3,500 rails, 1,000 tons of iron. On May 10, 1869, a group of workers and company officials gather at Promontory Summit, Utah, and watch the placing of the last tie, the fixing of the last rail, and the presentation of the various precious metal spikes, including the golden spike from California. Hats off, signals a telegraph operator to all the listening nation. Prayer is being offered. Several minutes later, telegraph wires hum again. We have got done praying. Leland Stanford of the Central Pacific has the honor of driving in the golden spike. Actually tapping in the golden spike with a mallet. It's too soft to be driven with a sledgehammer. After the ceremonial tap-in, the golden spike is removed and a steel spike set in its place. Stanford now takes a mighty swing with a sledgehammer and misses. Thomas Durant of the Union Pacific takes a mighty swing and misses. With the count 0-2, a crew chief steps forward and drives the spike home. The Central Pacific locomotive number 119 and the Union Pacific locomotive Jupiter steam forward and touch cow catchers. Their engineers have the first drinks and then the celebration becomes general. The entire United States celebrates. Chicago makes a procession seven miles long. New York hangs out bunting, fires a hundred guns, and holds church services. Philadelphia rings the Liberty Bell. Hundreds gather in the streets of Buffalo and sing the Star Spangled Banner. In Sacramento and San Francisco, people are celebrating until dawn. And Leland Stanford, Collis Huntington, Mark Hopkins, and Charles Crocker are the heroes of the hour. The building of the Transcontinental Railroad is the greatest engineering and construction project up to that time in American history. California had been isolated from the United States despite the gold rush and the admission of California to the Union. Now, the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad shatters that barrier of isolation. Personally, Stanford, Huntington, Hopkins, and Crocker are transformed from four middle-class Sacramento businessmen into the Big Four. They do not rest on their laurels, but forge ahead and form a second company, the Southern Pacific Railroad. They lay tracks through California and eventually across Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. Until the mid-1880s and the arrival of the Santa Fe Railroad, the Big Four have a monopoly of rail transportation in California. The monopoly 
and the wealth and power it gives them makes them truly the big four. But with that comes critics and enemies. Though president of both the Central Pacific and the Southern Pacific, Stanford finds time to develop two wineries and a racehorse breeding farm and to build a mansion on Knob Hill in San Francisco. He also becomes the president of a steamship line. In 1885, he is elected to the U.S. Senate. Also in 1885, he establishes Stanford University in honor of his son, Leland Stanford, Jr., who died the year before of typhoid fever. Stanford donates acreage for the university from his racehorse facility, which explains why Stanford University's nickname, The Farm. Stanford also donates about $2 billion in today's money to fund the university. Stanford dies at 69 years old in 1893. Collis Ennington continues as lobbyist for the Central Pacific and the Southern Pacific Railroads in Washington, D.C. Suspicions abound that he greases the palms of, of congressmen, but nothing is ever proved. In 1891, he completes the building of the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad across Virginia and through West Virginia to the Ohio River. At the Ohio River, he builds town of Huntington and develops it as an industrial center. He also builds shipyards at Newport News and several short lines throughout Virginia. Huntington's activities contribute to an economic boom. Huntington donates tens of millions in today's dollars to the building and maintenance of schools, museums, libraries, and parks in Virginia. One of the schools that benefits enormously from Huntington's largesse is the Hampton Institute, Virginia's first black college. Huntington dies at 78 years old in 1900. Most of his vast art collection goes to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Proceeds from the sale of his Fifth Avenue mansion go to Yale University. Mark Hopkins continues his role managing the financial affairs for the Central Pacific and the Southern Pacific. His sage advice keeps his partners from making rash moves with their new wealth. He donates to various charities and begins the building of a mansion on Knob Hill, but he dies at age 64 in 1878. His wife, Mary, finishes the mansion and lives there until her death in 1891. The mansion is destroyed in the earthquake and fire of 1906. The Mark Hopkins Hotel is later built on the site. What is the penthouse suite at the top of the hotel is converted in 1939 to a grand cocktail lounge and restaurant called the Top of the Mark. When World War II erupts, it becomes tradition for couples to have their last dinner, drink and dance together at the top of the mark before the serviceman departs for war in the Pacific. Charles Crocker continues supervising construction for the Central Pacific and Southern Pacific. He founds towns along the Southern Pacific route across Arizona and New Mexico and names one of them Deming in honor of his wife's maiden surname. He serves for a time as president of Wells Fargo. He buys controlling interest in the Woolworth National Bank, reorganizes it, and names it Crocker Bank. 
He speculates in real estate and irrigation farming and is one of those responsible for California's boom in fruit and vegetable production. In 1886, while visiting in New York, his carriage overturns and he is seriously injured. He never recovers and dies at age 65 in 1888. He leaves behind an estate valued at 400 million, something like 6 billion in today's dollars. Leland Stanford, Collis Huntington, Mark Hopkins, and Charles Crocker were real-life Horatio Alger characters who rose from humble beginnings to power and wealth. They were emblematic of other larger-than-life figures who arrived in the Old West when it was a wilderness and helped transform it into a modern society. And special thanks to Roger McGrath for telling this story, The Big Four and the Transcontinental Railroad. And as Stephen Ambrose reminded us in his version of the story, and that's about the workers mostly, that those 30 years in American history brought us the Telegraph, the Transcontinental Railroad, the Civil War, and the end of slavery. And Ambrose called it the most transformational generation in American history. I leave it to you to decide. The story of the Transcontinental Railroad, here on Our American Stories. Thank you.